I have volunteered to be a poll observer in several elections because I feel like it's part of my duty as a citizen. I'm an attorney, and they had a special call for attorneys to be present to make sure that people who were told they couldn't vote um, could properly fill out paperwork and cast a provisional ballot. The voters had said that they felt good that there were people um, paying attention and watching. Elections officials across the country are reporting an increase in poll watchers and poll observers this primary season. But what happens when those keeping an eye on the democratic process are trained by groups who believe this? We are taking the lessons we learned in 2020 and we are going forward to make sure they never happen again, ever. That's Cleta Mitchell, a conservative attorney and former state representative in Oklahoma. Mitchell worked with former President Trump to try to overturn the results of the 2020 election. She and other supporters of the so-called big lie have been hosting seminars in several states to mobilize poll watchers ahead of the midterms. What's the role of poll watchers in our democracy? What effect does their presence have on voters and the ability of election workers to do their jobs? This show is part of 1A's Remaking America series, which explores how Miss information spreads and the threat it poses to democracy. We'll answer all those questions and more after the break. This episode is part of 1A's Remaking America series. Throughout the series, we explore how misinformation spreads and the threat it poses to democracy. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Let's get into the conversation by welcoming our first guests. Joining us from Arizona is Republican Maricopa County recorder Stephen Richer. Stephen, welcome to 1A. Thank you so much for having me. Also with us is Karen Hebb, the elections director in Henderson County, North Carolina. Karen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Oh, Karen, you told the news outlet VoteBeat that May's primary in North Carolina was one of the worst elections you've ever worked. Why is that? Normally, when we have elections here in our county, uh, we would have eight to ten observers from each party. Um, This past election, we had almost 30 observers that uh, were selected by the Republican Party. So it was a little bit overwhelming, uh, the number of people that we had. And what impact did that have on your ability to do your job? An observer's role is to observe. Uh, we we noticed at this election that they wanted more of an active role in the voting process. They wanted to be involved in every area. They're not uh, polling officials. They're there to observe, uh, and we had issues with that part of it. Stephen, Maricopa County, Arizona, made national headlines during the 2020 presidential election. Trump supporters were chanting outside the elections office to let them in. Conspiracy theorist Alex Jones spoke to the crowd as votes were being counted. This year's Arizona primary happened about a month ago. How did it go? It went well by all the normal metrics, but it was a slog. Um, We are subject to pressures we couldn't have reasonably foreseen, and there are a lot of people who want us to fail, but we feel, again, from the metrics by which elections used to be graded in, say, 2014, whether it was lines at the polling locations, ballots going out on time, ballots being accurate, tabulation going off well, it went well. You said you're facing more pressures. How would you describe those? The onslaught of 
theories about the election, uh, just communication concerns that we've never had, um, people interested in the process from all over the world, uh, lots of nasty emails and messages regarding any new theory. Just, it's a different ballgame now, and it is one that is pressure-filled. Have you seen more poll watchers in Maricopa County since the 2020 election? We have 210 voting locations, or we had 210 voting locations for the August primary, and they were open for 27 days. We had poll observers, political party poll observers, every single day, every single hour. We had them at our central facility where we do signature review, ballot processing, and ballot tabulation for all times at which we were operating. It was actually a pretty impressive showing by the political parties. So we're talking hundreds of political party observers were involved in the August 2nd primary in Maricopa County. Well, and how does that stack up to previous years? Is that normal? No. This is much larger than ever before, much larger than even 2020. Um, both political parties, but especially the Republican Party, have mobilized on a, like I said, truly extraordinary level. And some of this is not exactly glamorous because if you're there 27 days before the election at a voting location when only a few people come in, that's like watching paint dry for the most part. We're talking to Republican Maricopa County recorder Stephen Richer. Also with us is Karen Hebb, elections director in Henderson County, North Carolina. I want to play another clip here. This is Cleta Mitchell. Again, she's part of the Election Integrity Network, and that's a group working to mobilize conservative poll watchers. She's speaking with Jim Womack. He's chairman of the Lee County, North Carolina Republican Party. We've been very busy since uh, January, since your summit. We have not rested from that moment going forward. I know you're my, I mean, I, I point to North Carolina and I say to everybody, be like North Carolina, be like Jim Womack. Well, have better lists than we've got. I can tell you that. You need better, you better voter lists. You know, we well, let's start. with Karen, you're in North Carolina and a recent survey of county elections directors there found poll watcher violations in 15 counties. Officials observed poll watchers harassing voters and trying to enter restricted areas to view confidential voting records. What sort of information have poll watchers tried to access in Henderson County? We actually had uh, poll observers that tried to access the voting equipment. They wanted to be involved in the opening and closing. They wanted to be here in our office when we uploaded the data from the precincts on Election Day. They wanted to be part of that process. Uh, They wanted to be included in everything that we did from start to finish. Um, we've always been security conscious with our voting equipment. That's just, you know, the the one thing that you don't do is allow anyone access to your voting equipment unless it's someone in your office that's qualified. So um, we were kind of blindsided day after day of requests that were made of us that uh, we had never had before. So, of course, you know, it was very stressful because we were trying to Uh, allow them to do what they could do um, without breaking the law. So it was a constant uh, fielding of requests every day. Well, it sounds like part of what you were doing was having to educate the poll observers on where, where their limitations were while you were also in the process of trying to run an election. Exactly. Our first goal is to get the voters in, get the voters out as quickly as possible. We don't like lines no one does. So that's that's what our job is. Our job is not to stop 
every five minutes and try to answer their questions, you know, about the process. So I'm hoping to have a, a meeting with our political parties before this upcoming election in the fall to try to get on top of this so we can get the guidelines before it ever starts and gets out of hand again. We've also been hearing from elections officials across the country that they're, they're seeing an increased level of intimidation and threats against them, against the people who work with elections. Karen, is that something you're experiencing? Yes, it was. Um, we actually had uh, one of our uh, coordinators followed from a one-stop site when the polls closed that day and they were bringing in their ballots and their supplies, one of the observers actually followed them in their car from that site to our office. Um, of course, you know, nothing happened, but that's still a concern. So we're, we're going to have a meeting with our local law enforcement and we're going to relay that information to them. Um, of course, it's not against the law, like I said, but it is disturbing to think that someone is following you. Stephen, Mark Fincham is your party's nominee for Secretary of State in Arizona, and he's embraced former President Trump's false claims about the 2020 election. He was also outside the Capitol on January 6th. How are you? Cons- how concerned are you moving forward about potential interference in the midterm elections for members of your own party? Well, certain types of behavior that we would have thought would have been off limits previously have been normalized. You just ask about threatening correspondences or attempts to access voting equipment. I think a lot more people are going to be thinking about that now. The FBI recently arrested somebody who had made a death threat to me, and he lived in Missouri. So this is a national scope. During the August 2nd primary, we received several thousands of messages that were either extremely profane or contained threats. Uh, Working with law enforcement on a local, state, and national level is now a daily part of our lives. It's not something that any of us celebrate, but it is the new reality. That's Republican Maricopa County recorder Stephen Richer from Arizona. Also with us, Karen Hebb, Elections Director in Henderson County, North Carolina. Stephen, Karen, thanks for speaking with us. Now, many elections officials across the country are reporting an uptick in people signing up to poll watch. And while many poll watchers are there to perform a civic duty, reports of intimidation of both elections officials and voters are also on the rise. Here to tell us more is Alexandra Berzon. Alexandra is an investigative reporter with the Politics Desk at the New York Times. She's been reporting on efforts by prominent 2020 election deniers to recruit poll watchers for future elections. Also joining us is Tammy Patrick. She's a senior advisor to the elections program at the Nonpartisan Democracy Fund. That's a private foundation with the stated goal of building a stronger democracy for voters. She also worked as the federal compliance officer for the Maricopa County Elections Department in Arizona from 2005 to 2014. Tammy and Alexandra, welcome. Tammy, what have you been hearing from elections officials around the country about poll watchers since the 2020 election? So what I'm hearing reflects um, the first part of the show that you've you heard from the um, the local election officials, and that is that there has been a kind of a sea change. Um, as recorder Richard said, it's a different ball game now. So what we're seeing, unfortunately, is that the very important aspect of observing elections is being turned into um, a, a, an active role 
instead of being an active role, it's an armed role. And we're seeing observers taking this as a combative stance rather than one of education and observation. So um, what we're seeing, unfortunately, is that rather than observation, they're seeing it as a way of obstruction. And the good faith effort that has traditionally driven individuals to be observers um, is kind of being set aside. And now it's more of a, a surveillance of our election system. And I want to be really clear so that the listeners understand that observation is is important in our in our system. We want to be transparent. Election officials want to engage and educate the voting pop, um, public, and that observation should be meaningful. Um, you shouldn't have laws and situations where the observers have to stand twenty feet away and can't see anything. So it needs to be meaningful. But it should never be the case that it is um, set forth in a way that it can bog down the system or be used as a way of preventing anyone from being able to participate. And unfortunately, that's what we're seeing. We heard from Stephen and Karen that that they're spending more time now just educating the poll observers about what they can and cannot do. How should these observers ideally be trained to be part of the election process? So that's, that raises a really good question. And, and I will say that when I was in Maricopa County, I did some of the observer training for the political parties, or at least a portion of it. And what I wanted the observers to understand is what we needed them to be looking out for, things like an inconsistent application of the law. Um, it's important to know that poll workers or board workers, those are our neighbors. They're our friends and our family members that have volunteered to work at the polling place on election day or during early voting. And our election are really complex. So the example you played from Georgia where the uh, poll worker didn't know they weren't supposed to be on their telephone, there's a lot of things to remember. So we see observers as a way of keeping an eye on what's happening in the polling place so that if someone didn't completely understand their training, there's a way of um, stepping in and making sure that, that they understand the rules and guidelines that everyone has to abide by. But that includes the observers. So um, I had a, a state elections director say that they tell their observers they're there to use their eyes and their ears and not their mouth. Um, the states that have very clearly defined roles and abilities and the causes and um, process for removal of observer of observers are really the ones that are well positioned in this moment. But the ones, uh, the states where it's vague and it's ambiguous of what they can and cannot do and who they need to direct their questions to at the polling place, we're going to see a lot more chaos around those questions and issues. Because the individuals that are mobilizing in this moment are part of an active, orchestrated campaign to overwhelm our election officials. Well, Alexandra, you've been reporting on groups recruiting poll observers. Again, Cleta Mitchell is a conservative attorney who is part of former President Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election, and she's leading one of these groups. It's called the Election Integrity Network. Here's a clip of her speaking with former Trump White House strategist Steve Bannon last month. Every county has to have a local election integrity task force of the patriots of America. And we are training people. That's what we're doing at the summits. That's what the videos are. are. We're training. You have to have a committee, a task force that is watching every single thing. Alexandra, tell us more about Cleta Mitchell. Yeah, Cleta Mitchell was um, one of the key people involved in um, President Trump's efforts in 2020 
um, to try to overturn the election results, um, especially in Georgia and other places. And she helped uh, recruit John Eastman into the effort, um, according to emails um, through the January 6th committee. So she really played a pretty important role in that. And now she's part of something called the um, Conservative Partnership Institute, which is um, an a group that um, with Mark Meadows and others from the Trump administration that are trying to, and one of their um, initiatives is this, as you mentioned, the Election Integrity Network. Um, That is a sort of a coordinated effort to um, go into different states and put together statewide coalitions. And the coalitions are really around, and then as she mentioned, these local county level task forces that are, and the coalitions themselves, the state coalitions are bringing together, you have the RNC, the Republican National Committee has election in, um, integrity people in the states of, of what they call election integrity folks. Um, and they have, uh, they're really a key part of it. And then also um, you have these kind of more grassroots types of groups that are that have sprung up around this idea that people convinced that the 2020 election was stolen and are subscribing to a lot of, frankly, conspiracy theories around that. Um, And those people are kind of being brought together into these coalitions. You have a bunch of pretty mainstream conservative groups, um, Heritage Foundation's Action, Political Action, and Freedom Works, and and a bunch of conservative groups, Tea Party Patriots, and then bringing in these uh, really election activists who are activated around this. What happens at the election integrity seminars Mitchell leads? So at these seminars, all of these people kind of come together. Um, I went to one of them in Pennsylvania. They're holding them around the country. Um, and they talk to they, they talk about some of the issues with the 2020 election. And then they go into a very specific guidebook that Cleta and others have put together that's... Um, very specific around how to form these county by county task forces, where the idea is to be have a constant eye on the election offices to um, recruit. Um, and this is where the party comes in as well, but recruiting the poll workers and po- poll watchers, but also, as I said, poll workers, which is one key element of it as well is people, the people that um, that are that are actually going working the, um, the elections um, and then having um, the observers as well. And doing public records requests, doing um, a whole slew of activity around the election and just keeping a much, much closer watch at a county by county level on these elections offices. So I think that's why when you heard from the elections uh, folks, one of the reasons why what their experience is, is it, it is, as you said, a coordinated effort. Tammy, as you, as you look at the current state of our elections, how is the current environment impacting County's ability to recruit people, not just to observe polls, but just to work them. It's having um, quite a toll. So we know that in 2020, the pandemic, um, you know, put a a lot of pressure on the ability of poll workers to engage and and interact with the public in a polling place or or even handling balloting materials, that sort of thing. There was some real concern. And we saw a bit of a mass exodus from our more veteran poll workers. In this moment, we're seeing other individuals who are not willing to um, interact with a public that have set all of our civility and democratic norms aside and, um, and are taking out 
any of their frustration or any of their beliefs in these, these wide-flung conspiracy theories on the individuals they interact with. So pretty much every elections office in this country is struggling to find enough workers, whether it's the poll worker or I know in Maricopa County, they're looking for workers for the warehouse. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are individuals that have to process vote-by-mail ballots. And in this moment, we're really struggling to pull together that volunteer army that gets, quite frankly, underpaid to conduct our elections. And it's not just these temporary workers or poll workers. It is, in fact, our election professionals, our election administrators. So we have seen in some states 30 percent 25% of their election officials have left the, the job. So we, you know, most recently in Gillespie County in Texas, the entire staff left. Mm -hmm. In Arizona, Yavapai County, the vast majority of their elections office left. So in this moment, we're not only struggling because there's that loss of institutional knowledge that election officials take with them when they go, but we don't know who's going to fill that void and fill that vacancy. We're discussing poll watchers this election season, and we'll be back with more from you and our guests in just a moment. Let's get back into the conversation with this message from one of you. Melinda was a poll worker in Georgia during the 2020 election. I was also fortunately or unfortunately able to participate in the audit process and really had a lot of good run-ins with poll observers who were given the outlines of what they could or could not do and followed them. But there are also just so many poll observers who just don't listen to the directions, who try to get information out of poll workers that we don't have, or who try to talk to voters while they're voting or while they're trying to drop off their ballots. Melinda, thanks for that message. How typical is the experience Melinda describes there, Tammy? Unfortunately, it's it's very typical. Um, in the last two weeks, I've encountered hundreds of election officials at national conferences. I actually am in Missouri for their um, election authority and clerks um, conference today. And what everyone is telling me in large jurisdictions, small jurisdictions, jurisdictions that the former president won 70% of the vote, or jurisdictions where the current president won by a slim margin, it doesn't matter in this moment because we're seeing an exporting and an importing of conspiracy theories that are keeping people, I often say, engaged, enraged, and donating. So for those individuals who are purporting this undermining of our elections process, there is great incentive. Mm -hmm. They are filling their coffers. They're being reelected in their primaries. And there's very, very little accountability. So as long as that paradigm continues, we're going to continue to see this. And I will tell you that election officials are just exhausted. They do a job that is under-resourced, they're underpaid, they're overworked, and they're undervalued. Yesterday, um, a local official said, you know, after the 2020 election here in Missouri, or Missouri, <laughs> pardon me. <laughs> um, they said, I was a celebrity in my small town of 15,000 people where I've grown up and spent my whole life. People were happy to be able to vote by mail. They were happy to be able to drop off a, a ballot. Um, and she said, now I'm under attack. I am, um, I've heard from other election officials in Wisconsin that they went from being, you know, the, um, the pillar of their community to the pariah. Um, and this is not 
the way a democracy thrives, it's a way it dies. And we all need to be paying attention. Alexandra, who funds the Election Integrity Network? The, the Election Integrity Network is, th- is through the Conservative Partnership Institute, which is, um, as I mentioned, it's Mark Meadows and others from the Trump administration. Um, and Trump had given, actually Trump's PAC had given about a million dollars last year to the Conservative Partnership Institute. It, it collects money from a variety of conservative uh, donors, essentially, as a nonprofit. Um, it's also the other key out part of this effort is actually the Republican National Committee, which has a, you know, it, it, it had basically been sitting out um, these these kind of efforts for many years under a consent decree that they had signed in the 80s. And so this is really kind of a coming out party as well for the Republican, uh, for the RNC specifically. Um, they are spending millions in the states on election integrity, and one of the things they're doing is working and they're to recruit poll watchers, poll workers, um, and they are um, participating in the trainings and in the efforts from um, this Cleta Mitchell network as well. Well, here's a question we got from a member of the 1A Tax Club. How do voters know who is a poll watcher and who is an elections official? Tammy, what can you tell us? Most often, um, as a voter goes into a polling location, um, individuals will have some sort of badge or a button or some sort of credential that demonstrates what their role is in the polling place, because there aren't any states in the nation that just allow anybody to go into any polling place at any time. You have to be there for a specific reason, either as a voter, as a worker, as an observer, or there to assist a voter. So quite often, um, poll workers will have, you know, a, a vest on that says they're a a worker or a button, and in, sometimes they'll even say what political party they are. And then observers are more often than not um, together in a in a specific place in the polling location, so they're kind of set aside so that they don't see how people are voting because you have a private ballot. They're not allowed to touch the materials or the voting equipment. So quite often there'll be a group that'll be set aside. And I will say that research has shown that having observers in a polling location actually increases the voters' confidence in what's happening in the polls. But when you read the training materials and listen to the training that are um, are being done outside of official election administrator trainings, there's antagonistic language that's being used. Um, and what election officials are telling me is that these individuals show up as though they're they're coming to a crime scene and they're going to find the body um, because they believe these wide-based conspiracies that the election was stolen and they believe it's their patriotic duty to um, to get in there and disclose these, these rampant conspiracies. Um, and we've seen some fissures in our democratic foundation and unfortunately they're being exploited and, um, and widened by these individuals who are being led astray. Now, Alexander, for nearly 30 years, the Republican National Committee was prevented from monitoring elections. Tell us about the consent decree that led to that. Yeah, there was a consent decree. It was signed in in, um, 1982, I believe, that was um, followed a civil lawsuit where um, the RNC was accused, um, I believe in New Jersey, of having off-duty police officers um, intimidating voters and posting signs that were intended to intimidate black and Latino voters, or they were accused of this. And so they were essentially uh, had agreed to not participate, and this is from the, the National Committee, agreed to not participate in these kinds of activities 
Um, and that ended in 2018. So this, um, they, they had, there was some effort um, prior to this year, but this, this is the year that they're kind of most actively now participating in terms of the, of the RNC itself. There's, the state parties had been doing these kinds of activities uh, previously. So what they've done is um, they've re- they have hired election integrity directors in, I think, at something around half the states or maybe a little less than that, at least. Um, and then they also have lawyers who and the and they're working as part of these kind of coalitions as well as with the state parties to do this recruitment and do this work. Well, as we mentioned earlier, the entire elections office in Gillespie County, Texas, recently resigned. Gillespie County is about 70 miles west of Austin and includes the town of Fredericksburg. And elections administrator Anissa Herrera wrote this in her resignation letter, quote, the threats against election officials and my election staff, dangerous misinformation, lack of full-time personnel for the elections office, unpaid compensation, and absurd, absurd legislation have completely changed the job I initially accepted. The life commitment I have given to this job is unsustainable. Tammy, what can be done to keep elections officials in these jobs? There's so many important things to pull out of that statement. Election administrators, for them, it is not just a job. It is their life's work. It's their passion. But we also know from research through Democracy Fund and Reed College that our election official offices across the country, more than a third of them don't have a full-time election staff person. So we undervalue the election work in our country, and we need to step up and forward and resource our election officials. We need to make sure that they have the staff that they need, the equipment that they need, and that they have a steady stream of funding. So up until this moment, we see kind of episodic funding in elections. So 20 years ago, with the Help America Vote Act, there was equipment, you know, funding to buy new equipment. So everyone got rid of their their um, their lever machines. Um, and then every 10 or 15, maybe every 20 years, there's a little bit of federal dollars that get thrown at elections. That's very hard to plan if you imagined doing your own budget and not knowing when you were going to get any more money and that it could be a decade. We need to support election officials. And we should really be celebrating the fact that the 2020 election was, as Chris Krebs has said, not only the most secure, but I would say it's also was the most transparent, the most observed, the most audited, the most litigated with the most number of voters in American history. And our election officials did it all in a global pandemic. And we should be having ticker tape parades for them, not having to have Senate hearings and House hearings where we listened to the death threats and the um, the the just vitriol that they have to deal with. Because our election officials are our neighbors, they're our family, they're our friends. They sit next to people in their houses of worship and shop at the same grocery store. So we need to take a step back and hold individuals accountable who are telling the lies and the mistruths about our elections and embrace the facts again in this country. And we have to go back to a time of civility and some democratic norms like if you lose an election, 
you concede. <laughs> um, you don't call for a recount when you lost by tens of thousands of votes um, in a jurisdiction um, because all of it is just being piled on election officials. And, and as I mentioned before, they are quite frankly exhausted. Last year, Texas lawmakers passed Senate Bill 1. It expands the powers granted to partisan poll watchers. Election workers can now be held criminally liable for keeping poll watchers out of their offices. Here's the bill's sponsor, Republican State Senator Brian Hughes of Tyler, Texas. This bill allows poll watchers to see and hear the activities they are legally entitled to observe. It also creates a criminal penalty for keeping out an eligible poll watcher and allows poll watchers to seek to enjoin any unlawful obstruction. We got this tweet from Laz who says, do election workers have to respond to poll watchers or can they just ignore them? Tammy, really briefly, again, is this something that varies from state to state? It really does. So in my former state of Arizona, the election observers were tasked with only speaking to the supervisor at a polling location or the inspector. So um, as I mentioned, the states that have really clearly defined protocols and policies are the ones that are best positioned in this moment, because um, many of them will say you can't talk to a voter, um, but it allows them to interject themselves into the process. And we know from, from a lot of research that any delays can cause long, long lines. Tammy, in just a a sentence or two, what's your focus ahead of the November elections? Oh, that's a tough one. (laughs) There's so much going on right now. This is definitely on my radar, along with um, focusing on making sure that our supply chain and ballot uh, paper is uh, sufficient to accommodate all the voters who we hope are going to turn out in November. That's Tammy Patrick. She's senior advisor to the elections program at the Nonpartisan Democracy Fund. Also with us, Alexandra Berzon, an investigative reporter with the Politics Desk at the New York Times. Tammy, Alexandra, thanks. This show was part of 1A's Remaking America collaboration with six partner stations across the country. Remaking America is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Today's producer was Anna Casey. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. This is 1A.